Our reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. There are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The word of the Lord. Do you want to change the world? Do you think the world needs changing? Do you think it's even possible to change the world? For most of us, the answer to those questions is obvious. Of course we want to change the world. Of course we should try as hard as we can to make the world a better place. 2,000 years ago, the answer to those questions was just as obvious, but it was the exact opposite of what we would say. If you had asked anyone in the ancient world, do you think it's possible to change the world? They would have said, what are you talking about? There's no changing the world. There's no making the world a better place. Where would you get such a fantastical, puerile idea as that? For people throughout the ancient world, and, and this would have been both in the West and in the East, 
Uh, people saw the world in history as a never-ending cycle of life, suffering, death, rinse, repeat. That the world in history was a hamster wheel just going around and around and around. So Eastern religions called it, and still do call it, the cycle of karma. Western people called it fate with a capital F. But for everyone in the ancient world, there was no idea about changing the world. Your best hope was escaping the world, finding some way to, to get off of the hamster wheel of suffering and death. And that's what most religions and spiritualities in the ancient world were focused on. But there was no idea that, that it was possible to change the world. So where did we get this idea of progress? How did it become so obvious to us? The answer is the Bible. The Bible tells us that this world in history is not a never-ending cycle of suffering and death. It's not a hamster wheel going around and around. It's a story that's going somewhere, that God is at work in this world to change this world because he loves this world. And here's one of the really amazing things about this. Part of God's crazy idea is that he wants to use you as part of his plan to do it. Do you want to be a part of God's vision to change the world? This passage that we just read is a story about how God wants to use your story as part of his story to change the world. God wants to use your story as part of his story to change the world. And it's all wrapped up in this idea of bearing witness. This is one of the main themes in the whole book of Revelation. And this passage we just read is the climax of that theme. What does bearing witness mean? Let's find out by looking at three different aspects of what it means to bear witness. We're going to look at prophetic witness, repentant witness, and gospel witness. Okay, prophetic, repentant, and gospel witness. First, repentant witness. Now, most of Revelation is a vision that was given to the Apostle John. So at the very beginning of this passage, John is told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place of God's dwelling, but over and over in the New Testament, it says that the church is the new temple of God, the new place of God's dwelling. So to measure the temple is God's way of marking out the church and protecting it from ultimate spiritual harm. But that doesn't mean no harm or danger. And we see that in the next verse. It, it says, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, this is just a way of saying that the church is not hermetically sealed off from the rest of the world. That God's vision is to bring healing and renewal to the world. And one of the ways he does that is by sending the church out into the world. That's the court outside the temple. In other words, Christian faith is public faith. That Christian faith means that the gospel is supposed to enter into the public square. And we see that really clearly in the very next verse in which we are introduced to these two witnesses. It says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, some people 
interpret this as um, two specific individuals that would appear in history, but most of Revelation is symbolic. That means that these two witnesses are a symbol for the church. And we see that very clearly in the next verse here where it refers to them as two lampstands. In chapter 1, lampstand is a symbol for the church. So this is just talking about the church. But what is the church supposed to do? Well, um, the passage says that they will prophesy. They, They will prophesy. Now, what does that mean? Well, at first glance, it looks a little harsh. It says, these are their instructions. If anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Yikes. Now, here's what's going on. This is a way of comparing the church to Elijah and Moses, who were two of the most famous prophets in Israel. Elijah called fire down on the enemies of God. Moses called plagues down on Egypt, including turning water into blood. Now, remember, Revelation, most of Revelation is symbolic. So this is not talking about literal fire or literal plagues. It's a way of saying that whenever the church is faithfully bearing witness to who God is and what God is doing in the world, that it's going to feel like fire or plague to people who don't want to hear it. Why? Because one of the prophet's main jobs in the Bible is to call people back to the truth. One of the main jobs of a prophet is to call people back to the truth. Now, here's what this means for you and for me. Our culture, our society is filled with all kinds of narratives that claim to tell us about reality. And these narratives come to us in stories, slogans, tweets, music, TV shows. So for instance, in our culture, we have an identity narrative. Our identity narrative says you have to be true to yourself. That means that identity is self-created, self-determined, self-defined. Or another way we say it is, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. It only matters what you think about yourself. Identity is self-created. Or we also have a freedom narrative. Everyone should be free to live however they want, as long as they don't harm anyone else. Or a morality narrative. Everyone has to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. Now, I'm sure we've all heard these narratives, but here's the thing. Every single one of these narratives contains a kernel of truth. But at some point, they all break down because they can't get us where we really want to go. It's kind of like a car, an old car that you're always having to fix. Did you ever have one of those cars? Maybe it was your first car, some old junker that was 28 years old and was held together by duct tape. Cars like that will get you some places, little trips around town. But if you have to go on a long trip, if you need to get somewhere far away, those cars are always breaking down on the side of the road. They can't get you where you really want to go. To be a prophetic witness in the lives of your family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers means being there for them when their car breaks down so that you can point them to the only real car that can get them where they want to go. So for instance, our culture's identity narrative very rightly says that every human being needs love and affirmation. 
It's also right when it says that other human beings will fail to give you the love and affirmation that you need. So when, when we say it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, that's a way of naming the reality that, look, other human beings will fail to give you the love and affirmation that you need. But our identity narrative breaks down when it says that we should be able to provide ourselves with the love and affirmation we need. When we say it only matters what you think of yourself, that narrative breaks down. That doesn't work. We can't give that to ourselves because every human being is looking for love and uh, a love and an affirmation that comes from outside of ourselves. Especially it needs to come from someone whom we admire, from someone whose opinion matters to us, and especially it needs to come from someone who sees into the depths of our being with all of our fears and our faults and our failures and who loves us unconditionally, regardless of what they see there. We can't give that to ourselves. That narrative, our identity narrative is, is like a car. It's always breaking down. It can't get us where we want to go. Um, the gospel is the only narrative that tells us about a God who created you, who loves you, who sees into the depths of who you are, knows every bit of your being intimately and infinitely, and yet loves you unconditionally through the uh, redemption of Jesus Christ. Friends, bearing prophetic witness in this world means first being able to identify the narratives in our culture. It means being able to affirm what's good and right about those narratives. But it also means being able to call attention to the insufficiency of those narratives to get us where we really want to go and to point to the full sufficiency of the gospel as the only thing that can. Some of you may ask, how do I do that? Keep coming back because we talk about this all the time here. But that leads to our next point. We just looked at prophetic witness, but the next kind of witness is repentant witness. If you're exploring faith and spirituality, you are probably painfully aware of how many Christians look just like the rest of the world and a lot of times even worse. So you're very justified in asking the question, why in the world would I believe in something that doesn't produce the, the change that the very people who are proclaiming it say it produces? That's a very fair question. Here's the beginning of an answer. The gospel not only um, has the resources to critique the world, it also has the resources to critique ourselves. And we see that if we go back to verse 3, it says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, the church, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, real quick, just so we don't get too distracted, some of you may be wondering about the 1260 days. Revelation is symbolic. 1260 days is a symbolic way of indicating the duration of time the church is active in the world. That's all it means. But here's what I want us to see. It says the church is clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is, well, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's cloth that's used to make sacks, which means that it's a pretty raggedy excuse for clothing. In the Bible, putting on sackcloth was a way of expressing grief, mourning, and lament, but especially it was a way of expressing repentance. Notice here it's the church that's clothed in sackcloth. That means that when the church calls the rest of the world to repentance, and it should, that one of the main ways it does that is first by modeling repentance to them. This is one of the main themes of the whole Bible. So in the Old Testament, 
the prophets were constantly calling people, religious people, the people of God, calling them to repentance. Or in the New Testament, the book of James continues this tradition. Or if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was constantly calling good religious people to repentance. So if you're exploring faith and spirituality, I want you to know that you are right, very right, to see the failure and the hypocrisy of the church. But I also want you to see that there, you will never bring a critique against the church that God himself hasn't first beaten you to the punch. That the gospel itself contains the resources for critiquing ourselves. That means that for us Christians, that, that when we hear the call to repentance, that's first a call that we should be hearing ourselves, that we should be modeling repentance to the rest of the world. So, for instance, one of the most obvious ways that we can and should be doing this right now is by um, the church, and especially white Christians, to be repenting for the church's complicity for the racism in our country. You know, it should not be controversial to say that the church has not just tolerated, but often perpetuated racism in this country. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned two books. One of them is Divided by Faith by the sociologists Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Uh, the other is The Color of Compromise by the historian Jamar Tisby. It should not be controversial to name the reality that the church has been complicit in racism. What is controversial right now, and I see this quite a bit, is that many Christians, especially white Christians, um, are pushing back very hard on the idea of corporate confession, corporate repentance. The idea that we can have a share in the responsibility and the guilt for what the church has done. Let me say a couple of things about that. And the first is this, the Bible itself shows us the call to corporate confession and repentance. So if you go to Daniel chapter nine, Daniel was uh, sent into exile in Babylon God had sent Israel into exile in Babylon um, because of Israel's corporate idolatry, corporate um, uh, oppression. Now, as far as we can tell, Daniel himself did not participate in any of those sins. He was a teenager when he went to Babylon. And yet in Daniel chapter 9, he clothes himself in sackcloth. And then he has this really long prayer in which he is repenting for the sins of his ancestors. This means that if, as Christians, if we deny the need for corporate confession and repentance, then we're denying something the Bible itself calls us to do. But secondly, this means that if we deny our corporate responsibility and the systemic racism in our country, then we actually end up perpetuating the very things that we're denying. We end up perpetuating them. Friends, we could multiply examples of the need for repentance in the church. This world is filled with idols, and the church is just as infected with them as anyone else. Idols of consumerism, materialism, idols of individualism, or identity, or sexual freedom, or politics, or family, or achievement. The list goes on and on. All of these things are idols of a world that is looking for the vision of progress— but without God. It's looking for God's vision of progress, but without God. So there's an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers. He's also a brilliant writer and cultural commentator. Mark Sayers brilliantly summarizes secularism by saying, post-Christianity and its belief in progress is a desire for the kingdom without the king. 
that post-Christianity, secular culture is a desire for the kingdom, but without the king. In other words, we are seeking happiness and fulfillment, but without God in our own power, on our own terms, but without God. The secular vision of progress is a counterfeit of God's vision. And one of the main purposes of the book of Revelation is to open our eyes to all the counterfeit gods and the counterfeit visions of progress that vie for our heart's allegiance. So Mark Sayers very insightfully says that, yes, the church should be calling the world to repentance of its sin and idolatry and its secularism. But he also says that that. We can't desecularize the world unless we first desecularize ourselves. That the church is just infected. We can't desecularize the world unless we first desecularize ourselves. And that means putting on sackcloth. In other words, there's no way that the church can go out to the world and call the world to repent of its own sin and idolatry unless we are not first repenting of our own sin and idolatry. Otherwise, when we do turn outwards towards the world, we're going to do so from a place of contempt and condemnation, which is the exact opposite of God's heart. And that leads to our last point. We've seen prophetic witness. We've just looked at repentant witness. Lastly, we need to see gospel witness. One of the really interesting things about this passage that we just read is that it is so unlike the rest of the book of Revelation. Really, it's, it's a parable. It's the story of two individuals who are bearing witness to God in a world that is totally hostile to their message. And then the world kills them and it leaves their bodies lying dead in the street for three days. But then they rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. Hmm. Does any of that sound familiar? That is the basic storyline of the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's the basic storyline of the gospel. Here's what this means. It means that the church not only proclaims the gospel with our mouths, but we should embody the gospel with our lives. That when the world looks at the church, it should not only hear the gospel coming out of our mouths, it should see the basic storyline of the gospel embodied and reproduced in our very own lives. That's what the world should be seeing when it looks at the church. It's this gospel storyline. Now, here's the million-dollar question. What is the gospel? Well, let's start by asking this question. What is the gospel not? And I called our good friend C.S. Lewis to help explain it to us. In his book, Mere Christianity, he, he tells us what Christianity is not. He says, the popular idea of Christianity is that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher. And that if we only took his advice, we would establish a better social order. It is quite true that if we took Christ's advice, we should soon be living in a happier world. You need not even go as far as Christ. If we did all that Plato or Aristotle or Confucius told us, we should get on a great deal better than we do. And so what? We have never followed the advice of the great teachers. Why are we likely to begin now? If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. There has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. Friends, the gospel is not good advice. 
that means that it is not moral or religious instruction. It is not ethical guidance. It is not a social movement. It is certainly not a political movement. All of those are ways of flattening the gospel by trying to squeeze Jesus into our modern secular vision of progress. It's the kingdom without the king, but it's not the gospel. Now, let's be really clear about something. The gospel should result in moral, ethical, social, and political change. It should result in those things. But don't confuse the results of something with its essence. Because literally, gospel means good news. In other words, the gospel is not good advice that's telling us about something we must do. The gospel is good news that's telling us about something that has been done for us by grace. That means that the gospel is is the story, the true story of how the God of the universe entered this world as a human being, was killed, crucified by a world that was utterly hostile to him, but then rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then God implants his Holy Spirit inside of his people to reproduce the same new creation, resurrection life in us. Do you realize what this is? Dear ones, this is the love that you've been looking for all your life. This, you know, no one's opinion matters more than God. And no one knows you more intimately and more infinitely than the God who created you. He knows everything about you. Our greatest longing as human beings is to be known and loved. Our deepest fear is that the more someone knows us, the less they could possibly love us. The gospel heals our fear by fulfilling our longing. And the way it does that is by giving us a God who died for us. That's the gospel. Friends, there is nothing more transformational than a sacrificial love that gives its life away for the sake of its beloved. And there is nothing more mind-boggling than the God of the universe who would do that for his enemies. And yet that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. That's the gospel. That's the the power, the the transformational power of a sacrificial love that gives its life away for the beloved. When that life, when that transformational love comes into your life, it transforms you. It reproduces the same kind of love in your life so that the church should not only proclaim the gospel with its mouth, it should be embodying and reproducing the gospel, the storyline of the gospel in our lives. And that might actually include at least being willing to lay down your life for someone else, even an enemy. And we actually see that if we go back to verse two. It says, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for, two, for 42 months. That means that, that the church was never intended to remain within the comfort and safety of its own bubble. It was always meant to go out into the world, outside the temple, out into the world, to the nations, to a multi-everything world, and, and even be willing to be trampled by that world for the sake of the world. Dear ones, yes, the gospel should result in all kinds of change in the world, moral change, ethical change, political, social change. The gospel should result in more justice in the world, more equity in the world. It should result result in all of those things. 
But at the very same time, we have to remember that we as human beings do not have the power to bring about that kind of ultimate transformation. The idea that we humans have that kind of power is part of the secular idolatry that the gospel confronts in the first place. But by working for change in this world, it is, it is a way of pointing to the God who will bring about the ultimate change we all long for. Dear ones, God invites you to be a part of his vision to change the world through prophetic witness, through repentant witness, through gospel witness. The more the transformational power of the sacrificial love of Jesus gets to work in your heart, the more it makes you a part of his vision to change the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this vision of change, this vision of transformation. We thank you not just for the vision of it, but for the realization of it through Jesus Christ in our lives. And we pray this morning that you would help us not just to, um, to proclaim the gospel with our mouths, but Lord, we pray that you would help us more and more to embrace and allow your Holy Spirit to reproduce the new creation, resurrection, gospel, life of Jesus in our lives that we might be able to more faithfully bear prophetic witness to our friends, neighbors, and coworkers, that we might bear more repentant witness by confessing and repenting to the world around us, and that we might bear gospel witness to the world around us by pointing to our Savior Jesus with our very lives. For we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.